James chapter 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for another day and another opportunity we have to gather around your word, your truth. And we do pray that you would sanctify us by your truth. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively would be acceptable in your sight. For Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Last week we talked about the reality of our untamed passions. James chapter 4 begins with this question. What quarrels, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? We have passions, we have desires within that wage war against our souls. In the believer, these passions are a product of the flesh. The body still has desires and cravings that we're accustomed to obeying. These passions crave fulfillment and thus are inherently self-oriented. The delay or denial of these passions that are waging war within us causes conflict with others. When those around us do not cater to our desires, when they do not immediately fulfill our desires, conflict arises, and the love that, we, that ought to define our relationships within the body of Christ, the relationships of believers, that love completely disappears. And again, where do these desires come from? Those unredeemed fleshly passions long for fulfillment, and if you think about the fact that we have these unredeemed fleshly passions longing for fulfillment, craving and denying us to fulfill those passions, we can either, either give in to those desires, we can give in to those cravings, or we can deny them. The believers in James's day, as well as in our day, were fighting and quarreling and disunified because they were feeding the passions of the flesh through friendship with the world. And that is the fact that James now turns his attention to. We covered verses 1 through 3 last week, and this week we'll cover verses 4 through 10 as we consider the reason for our untamed passions. The reason for our untamed passions. And the first thing he says in verses 4 and 5 of this section, again, as we transition from verses 1 through 3, the reason for our untamed passions is that we are feeding the passions of our flesh with our friendship with the world. Look again at verses 4 and 5. 
Again, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he is made to dwell in us? You adulterous people. That's clearly not a compliment. This is an indictment. The believer in James's day were an adulterous people. We all understand what that means. Adultery is an intentional breaking of the covenant between husband and wife. If you think about the nature of marriage, the oneness inherent in marriage, biblically we understand that it is more than an economically advantageous arrangement, as the world says. It's more than a partnership between two individuals to achieve certain economic or social goals, as the world says. Marriage, biblically, is a union described in Scripture as a covenant entered into before God by which a man and a woman become one flesh. The nature of this one flesh union has a physical component that God has designed for the pleasure of the couple and also for procreation. But it also involves an emotional component. This one flesh union involves uh, an emotional union of one person with another by which love defines all of what they do between each other and that love is defined by a commitment to sacrifice for the good of one another to seek to meet the needs of one another to treasure one another is more than themselves this one flesh union that is defined by a physical component an emotional component is also defined by a psychological component these to become one, bonded by the unity of purpose. And that purpose is to love and serve the Lord together, to do all things for his glory. And ultimately, we know the grand design of marriage, this one flesh covenant union between a husband and a wife, as defined biblically, the grand design of marriage is intended to mirror the relationship of Christ and the church. Therefore, when the outside world sees a biblical Christian marriage, what it should see is a picture of the beauty, fidelity, harmony, and revelry of the relationship between Jesus Christ and his church. The relationship between Christ and his church is an indissolvable union. In Ephesians 2, Paul says that we have been united with Christ through faith in him, through our salvation. Jesus said it this way in John chapter 10, that he holds every one of his people in his hands. And the Father, who's greater than all, equally holds every one of his people in his almighty hands. He said, I and the Father are one. No one is greater than the Father. Paul said it this way in Romans chapter 8, that there is nothing, no created thing, that is capable of separating us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ our Lord. If this is the nature of the relationship between Christ and his church, if the relationship between Christ and his church is indissolvable, then marriage, which is supposed to picture the relationship between Christ and his church, should also be indissolvable. Jesus said in Matthew 19, what God has joined together, no man ought to separate. The covenant of marriage is entered into before God. Men stand as witnesses and God unites them as one. Jesus' point in that text is that no one should separate what God has brought together. I mean, he even, in speaking of the divorce permission that Moses gave in the law, he made it clear that even though Moses permitted divorce, that was not the way it was supposed to be from the beginning. And Moses permitted divorce because of the hardness of men's hearts, because of their sinfulness. So we certainly shouldn't be following after a principle or a practice that was given because of the hardness of our hearts. We should be seeking the ideal, and the ideal is, even as Jesus said in Matthew 19, what God has brought together, let no man separate. Now, what's my point in all of this? James 4 is not a text on marriage. My point is that if you understand, and I think this is James's point, if you understand marriage 
and the indissolvable nature of marriage, the one flesh nature of marriage, then you'll understand why adultery is so heinous. The world may have a concept of cheating that is scandalous, but it's really only scandalous if the one being cheated on was faithful. It's only really scandalous if the one cheating didn't fall in love with someone else. You see this kind of thing portrayed in literature, and in particular in film. A situation where a spouse feels underappreciated, underloved, undervalued, not treasured. They happen upon someone who does love, appreciate, value, and treasure them. They, quote, fall into love with them. And thus, we're encouraged through the narrative to root for the one who falls in what they're imaging, imagining to be true love as opposed to the harsh reality of their marriage. They have true love, and so they ought to pursue that true love, because true love wins, right? However, again, that's not the Lord's way. Adultery in any context is scandalous. It is heinous. It is scandalous. It is heinous because it dissolves a union that God has created, designed, and himself brought together. It is scandalous, it is heinous, because it destroys that one flesh union, a union in which a husband's body is said to belong to his wife, and the wife's body is said to belong to her husband, according to 1 Corinthians 7. A union in which the two are emotionally and psychologically unified. A union that is intended to picture the indissolvable nature of Christ's relationship with the church. For all of these reasons, adultery is a heinous crime. It is a heinous sin. Therefore, back in our text, when James says, you adulterous people, he says this and he means this to sting. He says this, and he means this to shake them out of a spiritual stupor. He means this as a slap in the face. He means this to make them very uncomfortable about their lives and their sin. He's not aiming for political correctness here. And of course, in context, in context the adultery that he's re addressing is not an adultery between husbands and wives, but he's using the relationship of adultery, of the relationship of the husband and wife union to image the relationship of Christ and his church. And he's saying that just as heinous and as awful and as wicked as it is for a husband and wife to have adultery among them when there is supposed to be this indissolvable, beautiful union, it is equally as heinous and hurtful for a Christian to be an adulterer against the Lord. He says again, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This should hurt. This should sting. This should cause us to reflect upon our thoughts of ourselves, our thoughts of the way we do life, of the things that we pursue. The implication is that if you are pursuing friendship with the world, then you are committing spiritual adultery. And just as enmity arises between a husband and wife in which there is adultery in their relationship, so also enmity arises between the Christian and our God when there's adultery in our relationship. Their adultery, their sin, James defines as making themselves friends with the world. He's using the term world here in a broad sense. He's not saying that you can't have friends in the world, individual people. He's not saying that everyone in the world is as wicked as they can be. And so you have to go and live in a desert, separate from all unredeemed humans to keep yourself 
as pure as possible from anyone and anything that might defile you. That's not what James is saying. Jesus even prayed in his priestly prayer for the church in John 17, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Jesus knew that we would remain in the world. In fact, he commissioned believers as they are remaining in the world to make disciples of those who are in the world. James's meaning of friendship with the world and his definition of the world here is more basic. It's more broad, in other words. And it's more akin to John's words in 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, John says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. Again, is he talking about the planet? Is he talking about every individual person in the world? No, listen. Again, do not love the world or things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, and then he defines all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world in this sense is the system of thought, values, passions, and pursuits which are contrary to the will of God. This is the world system that the unredeemed live by, according to Paul in Ephesians 2, where he said that they walk according to the course of this world. It is the world system under the control of Satan. Again, 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The believers in James's day and in our day made themselves a friends of this world. The world that consists of the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, the world that is walking according to the course defined by Satan. They've made themselves friends with this world, and for this reason, James calls them adulterers. And he says that there is now enmity between them and God. And the unasked implied question is, believer, is this what you want? Do you want to make yourself an enemy of God? Do you want to be a spiritual adulterer? Now, in what way are they enemies with God? Contrary to popular opinion, I think I've said this before, God is not a friend to the world. He's not a friend to those who pursue their own passions, which are contrary to his will. He's not a friend to those who walk according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, those who are considered sons of disobedience, those who are children of wrath, like in Ephesians 2. God is not a friend to those who are under the power of the evil one, 1 John 5. This world, along with its system of thought, desires, and actions, are in enmity with God. They are his enemies. It is dangerous for us, and again, I've said this before as well, it is dangerous for us to present a gospel of possible options for the world of men. It is dangerous for us to present a safe gospel, a gospel of a lovesick God who desperately wants to love humanity at any cost, who places no conditions on them accepting, trusting in him to the degree that they can continue to live whatever way they want when they come to him, as long as they just come. That is not the true gospel, beloved. There are no possible options for the unbelieving, unredeemed world of men. God provides them with only one option. Bow the knee. You're already under the judgment of God. John chapter 3 verse 36 says the wrath of God already abides on them. If they don't believe... If they don't choose the option of believing, of faith in Christ, they will remain under the wrath of God. This position of God toward those in the unredeemed state is that of judgment. It is nothing but a sliver of his common grace that prevents his judgment from completely overwhelming them at any moment. R.C. Sproul once said that sin is cosmic treason and the king of the cosmos will not suffer treasonous actions against his rule. 
He will not suffer them for long. Now we know that the king of the cosmos is also gracious and merciful. He is a just judge, but he's also gracious and merciful. And so he provides this one way for us to be forgiven of his judgment, for the wrath of God to be satisfied, and that is in the person of his son. His son's righteous life, the one who lived for obedience, who loved to do the will of his father in heaven. This one, his righteous life, made his death on the cross a sufficient payment to cover the judgment that we are due. And the one option that we have is to believe in him. And if we fail to do so, the wrath of God remains on us. All of this underscores the reality that the world, apart from Christ, are not his friends. They're not on good terms with him. They are his enemies. But we also know that back in our text in James, that James is not talking about the unbelieving world as enemies of God. He's talking about believers. He's saying to pursue friendship with the world, to connect the dots between this section and chapter 4, verses 4 through 10, and what we previously studied in verses 1 through 3, to pursue friendship with the world is to create enmity between us and God. Just as there is enmity between God and the unredeemed world. And the way we pursue friendship as believers, as it said in verses 1 through 3, is by feeding the passions of the flesh. Again, we talked about the unredeemed flesh, its cravings, its desires, which are contrary to the Spirit of God. And that we can either feed the passions of the flesh or we can starve them. But we're so accustomed to feeding the passions of the flesh, we're so accustomed to giving into the passions of the flesh. James says that we are making ourselves by that enemies of God. When we indulge in the passions of the flesh, we're living just as the world lives in the passions of their flesh. And we're making ourselves like enemies of God. Well, I wonder what some of those things are that we may do to make ourselves friends with the world. How do we feed the passions of the flesh? And I want to look at this from the perspective of 1 John chapter 2, which I referenced earlier. In 1 John chapter 2, again, he mentioned the lusts of the flesh. So we make ourselves friends with the world and feed the passions of the flesh when we pursue the world's sexual ethic, when we think or live as the morals of the world regarding sexuality. When we pursue sexual immorality of any kind, whether that is adultery, pornography, or any other form of immorality, when we pursue those things, we are feeding the passions of the flesh, and we are living as the world. Perhaps when we're persuaded by the current thought on morality concerning gender identity and are tempted to compromise the word of God in order to make people feel more comfortable about their choices when they come to us, as opposed to bringing the word of God to bear on their lives just as much as we must in our own. Perhaps we've bought into the world's idea of love, again, that love must win at all costs. That worldly perspective of love, that self-oriented, self-seeking, emotionally driven kind of love. How I feel determines if, when, and who I love. If I feel in love, then I'll continue. If I don't feel in love, then I'm justified in falling away. When that is, in fact, not the love of God. In 1 John chapter 2, John also mentions the lust of the eyes. We make ourselves friends of the world. We're feeding the passions of our flesh when we are intent on getting only what we believe will benefit us. The lust of the eyes, just as Eve in the beginning saw that the fruit was good for food 
and she saw that it was able to make one wise. A.W. Tozer said that there is in the heart a tough, fibrous root of sinful humanity that longs to possess. He said that this is this inclination towards covetousness that drives all kinds of sin among us. Of course, that was part of James's point in verse 2, that we covet and cannot obtain till we fight and quarrel. The desire for more and more things to suit our perceived needs, more beautiful things, more better, bigger things, better things, things that help me, that focus, that intensity of coveting is a very worldly attitude. This is when we envision a church that exists solely to satisfy our needs. This is when we church hop to find just the right one, the one with just the right programs, one that won't require anything from us but to show up and plug in, the one that looks from the outside to have it all together. This is the one that we flock to. We don't want a church that we have to work for. We don't want a church we have to work in. We want one that's well-established. Forget about the fact that the motto in the New Testament with regards to the church is not how much I can get, but how much I can give. Because that's how God has designed the church, according to Ephesians chapter 4. That each member ought to participate in using the gifts that God has given. And that as each member participates in using the gifts that God has given, that the whole body grows. But that's not what we want. We want a church that works for us. Not a church that we work for. We want more. Certainly you see this kind of attitude when we pursue life as the world. This attitude of wanting more and more regardless of the cause. We attend colleges that we can't afford to get jobs that we have to fight and compromise our values in order to be able to purchase a car that we can't afford, a house that we can't afford, to have just the minimum number of children so that we can accumulate greater wealth in accord with the American dream. So that we can then send our children off to schools that will teach them all they need to know about life, including sexuality. So we don't have to worry about it. Let the experts, quote unquote, teach them all they need to know about life. We want them to get good grades so that they can go to a college that they can't afford in hopes that the government will forgive their loans so that they can start the cycle all over again while they leave us in a nursing home that neither of us can afford so that someone else can take care of us as we breathe our last breath. This attitude of wanting more is also why the church never has enough to support the ministry. Not enough financial resources, not enough people to physically do the work because we're too busy building our own kingdom instead of building into and investing into the kingdom of God. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and John says in 1 John 2, the pride of life. We make ourselves friends of the world, feeding the passions of the flesh, and we exhibit a lust for this life, boasting about this life, reveling in the ingenuity and ability of man. This is why the rich man tore down his barns in Luke to build larger barns. And he said to himself, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many, many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. He thought, I am a good man. I have been successful. I've done all that I needed to do. Now I'm going to save up more and more and accumulate more and more. And then I'll enjoy it all. And he had no idea that the Lord was going to require his life of him. This is what this attitude is what will lead the believers in James's day to say in James 4.13, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. They were boasting in themselves. They thought so much about themselves. It's our insistence on our ability to the exclusion or intentional denial of our dependence on the Lord. It's the pride of life. I saw on social media a note entitled, Five Things Jesus Did Not Say, and I think a lot of these things also speak to the pride of life. 
Number one, follow your heart. Jesus did not say, follow your heart. What did he say? He said, follow me. Number two, the world says, be true to yourself. Jesus did not say, be true to yourself. He said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself. Number three, the world says, believe in yourself. Jesus said, believe in me. Number four, the world says, live your truth. Jesus said to the contrary, I am the truth. Number five, the world says, as long as you are happy, that's all that matters. But Jesus says, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? And what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Any or all of these ideas sound good to the ear and stimulate the passion that exists in our flesh to boast in ourselves and our ability, to, but ultimately they all fall short of the glory of God and they certainly fall short of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder if you fall into any of these things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. I've given just a few examples, but perhaps there are other ways that you're feeding the flesh making yourself a friend of the world and alienating yourself from your God? Are you following the sexual ethic of the world or of Christ? Are you seeking that which will please you the most or that which will please Christ? Are you boasting in yourself, your accomplishments, building your kingdom? Or are you seeking to boast in Christ to build his kingdom? Christian, are you living as a friend of the world, thus putting yourself in the place of an enemy of God? It begs another question, in what way are we as Christians enemies of God? What does James really mean by that? We know that we're not enemies in the same sense as the world, right? We will not suffer the same fate as the world. There is, according to Paul in Romans 8.1, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But how are we as enemies? In what way are we in enmity with God? How does he resist, oppose, or judge us as his enemies when we pursue friendship with the world? Well, in verse 3 of the same chapter, James 4, we read already, you have not because you ask with wrong motives. Christians who pursue friendship with the world, in other words, are enemies of God in the sense that he opposes them, not in an eternal condemning sense, but a more practical sense. He will not give you what you want. He will not make you prosper in pursuing your fleshly indulgences. He will say no. He will oppose your pursuits. The reality is there are some times when he opposes you and then there are some times that he gives you what you want. And he gives you what you want. He allows you to get whatever fleshly indulgence you are pursuing so that you can then suffer the consequences of those things. This is the loving judgment of the Lord, the discipline of the Lord. This is Hebrews 12 kind of discipline. There the writer of Hebrews said that the Lord loves the one he disciplines and chastens every son whom he receives. He says, if you are left without discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. If you go through life and you sin and sin and sin and you have no consequences for it, then you have to really start to wonder whether or not you're in the faith. But if you are a believer, you should expect discipline. And it says in the text in, in Hebrews that he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The Lord disciplines those whom he loves in order to work out righteousness in their lives. The Lord desires our holiness. He desires our righteousness. So he does what he needs to do in order to bring discipline. This is back in our text, James chapter 4, verse 5. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us? Now, there are a lot of different interpretive questions when it comes to this verse. If you've read any commentaries on James or heard any passages preached on James in this in this area of of James chapter 4 you know there are, there's a lot of discussion about this particular verse but the best explanation that I've seen and heard and which I agree with is that this means that God desires our spirit meaning he wants for us his people 
to be devoted to him. He jealously desires the spirit he's made to dwell in us, that spirit, that part of us that yearns and that desires and that pursues. He wants that to be devoted to him. He wants that energy to be devoted to him, not to the world. The Lord is jealous for that. He's jealous for us. I like the way one author explained this idea of jealousy. He says, an illustration may help to explain why this is good news for us. As a husband, I am jealous for the affections of my wife, and anyone or anything that threatens to steal her love from me is met with the strongest of opposition. This is a good thing in marriage. It's the way it's supposed to be. And it's a good thing in our relationship with God that he's jealous for our affections. God is infinitely jealous for his people, and he will oppose with divine force anything or anybody who threatens their good. God is jealous for the affections of your heart as a follower of Christ. This is not an insecure jealousy that is afraid that you'll find someone or something better, for there isn't anyone or anything better. This is a secure jealousy that seeks what is best for you by guarding your heart from adulterous pursuits. He tells us to run from the things of the world and to cling to him in order to find all that we need. You hear that? The Lord is jealous concerning you. He will not have you seeking friendship with another, not because the other is better than him, because that's that's lunacy. There's no one better than him. But he desires what is best for you. And he knows that what is best for you is not friendship with the world, but he knows that what is best for you is him. It is himself. And so, yes, he will at times refuse us. He will oppose us. And he will give us the natural consequences of our foolish actions in order to remind us that there is no greater good than himself. Well, James transitions in verse 6. I've said before that Christianity is often characterized as a set of don'ts. Don't do this, don't do that. But it is not only a matter of what you don't do, what you choose to do instead is of equal, if not greater, importance. You cannot have a life fully devoted to Christ on the basis of what you stop doing alone. You also must actively walk in the good works that we are commanded to. Again, the Lord doesn't want you to just stop pursuing friendship with the world because that is not good enough for you. But he wants you to also pursue friendship with him, pursue a relationship with him, to do as one writer said, dig deep and sweat and labor in your pursuit of him because of all the good that you will find. If we are guilty of feeding our passions of the flesh through our friendship with the world, we should cease from feeding those passions. But we should also focus our energy on pursuing friendship with God. That's verses 6 through 10. Focus our energy on pursuing friendship with God. And he mentions a number of different ways that we should actively pursue friendship with God. Look at verse 6 through the first part of 7. He says, humble yourself before his grace. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. If you're pursuing friendship with the world, while the world may actively oppose you, while the Lord may actively oppose you, excuse me, in not giving you what you request, while he may discipline you for your foolishness, all is not lost. God is a God of grace. In fact, the text says that he gives more grace. God is opposed to the proud. Thus, we have to acknowledge when we are pursuing friendship with the world, since that is the issue. It is the pride of our heart that seeks to establish ourselves and our will over the will of God. God opposes anyone who does that, both the unbeliever and the believer. But he gives greater grace to the humble. And when it says humble yourself before the Lord, this certainly means that we need to confess our sin to him, right? We have to say what he says about our sin. That's the nature of confession. 1 John chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We must say what he says about our sin. If we're to say what he says about our sin, it also stands to reason that we need to know what he says about our sin. So we need to stay close to his word. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I may not sin against you. That's Psalm 119. 
So we need to stay close to his word. We need to say what he says about our sin. That is a part of the humbling process. Part of that humbling confessing may also require us to confess to our brothers and sisters in Christ if we're in sin. Galatians chapter 6 verse 1 says that if anyone is caught in a trespass, that he should be restored by a spiritually minded brother or sister in Christ. We live life in community, not apart from it. Your sin affects others as much as it affects you, and that God has designed the body of Christ to be a balm of itself. So where one is thriving, that one that's thriving, that spiritually minded brother or sister can help come alongside the one who is failing. And likewise, the one who is failing when they're thriving, if there's another who is failing, they can come alongside them and use the gifts that God has given to help strengthen and encourage them. Humble yourself before his grace. Confess your sin to the Lord. Confess your sin before his people. Confess your need for his grace. The Christian life is not a life of perfect people coming together to bask in our perfection. The Christian life, the gathering of the people of God, is a gathering of imperfect people who know a perfect God, who need his grace to live. It is a gathering of those who are continually calling upon the Lord, leaning on the Lord for his grace to do what is pleasing in his sight. A proud Christian is not only an oxymoron, it is an impossibility. The very nature of Christianity involves a realization of our need for and continual dependence on the grace of God. Again, he says, humble yourself before his grace. He also says, resist the devil. The second part of verse 7. Verse 7 says, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Well, why do we need to resist the devil? What is the devil constantly doing? He wants to discredit the people of God. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, Satan called, is called the accuser of the brethren. The Satan, that is what it means. That is what the name means. He is an accuser. He's constantly seeking to discredit the people of God and to discredit the work of God in them. We saw that very clearly in the, the recollection of the life of Job. Satan sought to discredit him. He's also seeking to deceive, just as he did in the beginning. God hasn't really said that you should be a pauper all your life, right? You deserve better. God hasn't said that you should be a prude all of your life, right? You deserve to be satisfied. So on and so forth. He is a prince of the power of the air. He's speaking these lies to the unbelieving world, and they're soaking it up. They're, they're sucking it up. They're living it. James is warning us to resist. Satan is a discreditor. He's a deceiver. He also wants to discourage. We read 1 Peter chapter 5 for our scripture reading. Peter said in a similarly worded passage, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Satan is pictured as a roaring lion. What does a roaring lion seek to do? To intimidate, to frighten. He wants to devour you with the fear of an attack or consumption. It's not necessarily that he is going to attack you, but he wants to devour you with fear of an attack. Fear of what? Well, Peter says to cast all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. He says that there's suffering going on in the world and you're not the only one. It's the fear that God doesn't care when you suffer. It's the fear that you are the only one who suffers. It's the fear that you are missing out on something. God is not taking care of you. Peter says, resist him. And he affirms for us that you are not the only one. 
to suffer in this way. There are other believers who are also suffering. In fact, he goes on to say in verse 10 of that same passage, After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Not only does he remind them that God does indeed care for you, he cautions them to watch out for the attack of Satan, the discouraging attack of Satan. He reminds them that they're not alone in this life. And he affirms for them, in the end, God will confirm, strengthen, and establish you. He will be with you in the end. Again, our text says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist his temptations. Resist his discouraging, accusing comments. Notice it doesn't say rebuke him. It doesn't say cast him out. It says resist him. You don't have to worry about him or his wiles. Submit to God. Resist the devil. God is greater than the discreditor, the deceiver, the discourager. He is more worthy of your attention and adoration. How do I focus on friendship with God? How do I pursue it? Humble yourself before his grace. Resist the devil. Draw near to him. Draw near to God. Verses 8 through 10. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Draw near to God. Seek his face. Cling to him. This is particularly significant as you think about sin and all of what James has said and will say about sin. And sometimes we get discouraged by our sin and we feel like we need to shrink away when we become overwhelmed with our sin and our wickedness and how easily we're drawn away by the ways of the world. And, and we feel like we should hide our faces from God. But James says, no, don't hide your face. Don't shrink away. Draw near. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. We draw near to the Lord in one sense by cleansing our hands of sin. The sin, the double-mindedness is a reference back to chapter 1 where the double-minded man is one who fails to have a consistent faith in the Lord. The double-minded is unstable in all his ways. Those who fail to trust in the Lord will look to other means for their provision. This double-mindedness is what leads to their pursuing a friendship with the world instead of continuing to trust in the Lord. James says, turn away from that. Repent of that. Someone once said that the whole life, hope of the Christian life is to be one of repentance. Yes, we repented once when we came to faith in Christ, but over the course of our lives, there will arise a myriad of other things from which we must repent, from which we must turn away. That idea of cleansing your hands of sin is, is this idea of repenting, turning away from it. Don't continue to indulge in it. Wash your hands of it. Turn away. In order to draw near. Verse 9, we must also mourn. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Again, one of the ways we're influenced by the world the most shows up in how we evaluate church. We want to come to a comfortable, always comfortable, always happy place. I remember being at a church many, many years ago now where that was a whole, that was a whole stated point and desire of their worship service. We want people to be happy and feel happy. That was it. We never want to be offended. We never want to be convicted. We don't want to walk out of service thinking, maybe that message was for me, or maybe I've got some growing to do. We don't want to mourn over sin. James is saying that's precisely part of the problem. We have become so accustomed to sin, to participating in the passions of the flesh, that we fail to be affected by how heinous it is. We fail to be affected by the reality that our sin, no matter how great or small it is in our eyes or in the eyes of the world, our sin as believers is spiritual adultery. It is breaking covenant with our God. It is something that creates enmity between us and him, where he actively opposes us. And we should be drawing near to him. We don't think about it that way. We often think about our sin as our little problem. 
Maybe we call it a secret sin or just something that we're, quote, struggling with. Much like we call certain lies little white lies or just stretching the truth when reality is just a lie like any other. Believe it, your sin, my sin, our making friends with the world, our endeavor to satisfy the passions of our flesh is spiritual adultery. And for that, we should be wretched and mourn and weep. Sometimes we shouldn't expect to have laughter and joy. Sometimes we need to sit and weep over our sin. If you're sitting before the Word of God Sunday after Sunday and are never convicted of your sin, never made to feel uncomfortable about your sin, never challenged to pursue Christ in greater ways, either you need to get rid of the preacher Well, you need to examine your own heart to see whether or not you're in the faith. I pray often that the Lord would burden my heart and the hearts of others with our sin. That he help us not to be comfortable with our sin, but help us to, to be uncomfortable, to mourn. And not to mourn just because we were caught, or if we were caught today but to mourn and to be uncomfortable because we know that our sin is spiritual adultery. One author said this, and I like these, a few different comments, and we're we're coming in for a close here. One author commented this, he said that we should treat sin seriously. He said, verse 9 can almost sound depressing. But those who live in friendship with this world do not see their sin as a big deal. He says James is telling them not to be trivial about sin, rather to grieve over sin. Another author said this, The awareness of sin used to be our shadow. Christians hated sin, feared it, fled from it, grieved over it. Some of our grandparents agonized over their sin. A man who lost his temper might wonder whether he could still go to Holy Communion. A woman who for years envied her more attractive and intelligent sister might wonder if the sin threatened her very salvation, but that shadow has dimmed. Nowadays, the accusation you have sinned is often said with a grin, with a tone that signals an inside joke. At one time, this accusation still had the power to jolt people. Another author said this, Go and read the history of revivals again. Watch the individuals at the beginning. This is invariably the first thing that happens to them. They begin to see what a terrible, appalling thing sin is in the sight of God. They temporarily even forget the state of the church and forget their own anguish. It is the thought of sin in the sight of God, how terrible it must be. Never has there been a revival but that some of the people, especially at the beginning, have had such visions of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of sin that they've scarcely known what to do with themselves. Our author asks this question, when was the last time you grieved over your sin? preached from Isaiah chapter 6 a number of weeks ago. And that's what Isaiah did. When he came face to face with the holiness of God, he didn't excuse his sin. He, He wept over it. He pronounced judgment upon himself. Woe is me, for I am ruined. Beloved, when was the last time you grieved over your sin? Yes, sin is cosmic treason, but I think we can find a way to detach our heart from that idea. To the point of this passage, sin is cosmic treason, but it's much more than that. It's spiritual adultery. When we think about adultery between a husband and a wife, we think about the most heinous of betrayals. And we grieve over those whose relationships are ruined by adultery. Your sin before God is spiritual adultery. When was the last time you grieved over that? James invites us to mourn over our sin, but he doesn't leave us there. Look at his last words in verse 10. He says, we should draw near to God overall. We should cleanse our hands. We should mourn over sin. But finally, he says again, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. 
This last verse in this short section gets to the heart of the matter in the mind of James. Those who pursue their passions do so because they desire fulfillment of their passions. They believe there's something missing in their life and they have to figure out how to get it. And the only way to get it in their minds is to live in the way of the world. James says, this is not the way to get what you want. This is not the way to get the good that you are pursuing. The way to get what you want, the way to get the good you're pursuing is to humble yourself before God because he is the one who exalts. Whereas he opposes those who reject him, those who make themselves friends of the world, he exalts those who are humble before him. So humble yourself before God. He's already said that it is only from above, from the Father of lights, that every good and perfect gift comes. You're not going to get every good and perfect gift by following the world, beloved. only right response to the reality of a holy and good God is to humble yourself before him, to seek his face, to draw near to him, to seek him to exalt you. Draw near. Humble yourself before him. I was listening to a song on the way in this morning entitled Rolling River God. It's a beautiful song, and the author of the song uses the imagery of a river rock that is in a river that is rushing over it. And when you pick up a rock from a river that is rushing, you know that usually those river rocks are smooth, but they don't start out that way. They start out rough and rugged, just like any other rock. But the writer of the song says, So I am a stone, rough and grainy still. The writer of the song says, When I close my eyes and feel you rushing by, I know that time brings change, and change takes time. And when the sunset comes, my prayer would be just one, that you might pick me up and notice that I am just a little smoother in your hands. He says at one point, the deepest part of you is where I want to stay and feel the sharpest edges wash away. You hear the desire in that song? The desire in that song is to draw near to God. It is a realization that when we sin, the fact that we have sinned, the fact that we are rough and grainy requires us to be closer to God, requires that we draw near to Him, that we seek to be as close to Him as possible in the deepest parts. I said a little while ago, the Christian life is not a life of perfect people coming together to bask in our perfection. The Christian life, the gathering of the people of God, is a gathering of imperfect people who know a perfect God and who also know they need his grace for life. I wonder if this describes your posture to the Lord. Drawing near to him in humble reverence. Seeking to be as close to him as possible. A position of humility. Drawing near. If it's not, then I commend this to you for prayer. I commend this to you as a priority to seek to draw near to the God of all grace. To seek to draw near in humility before him that he might exalt you. Well, again, why do we have those untamed passions waging war within us and causing wars among us? It is because we have for far too long sought out friendship with the world and have failed to focus on our friendship with God. If you know that to be you this morning, I would encourage you, as James does in this text, to humble yourself before the Lord. Put aside your adulterous ways. 
Cease from chasing after the passions of the world, and in humility draw yourself near to God. Next week we'll pick up in verse 11 and finish out this section as we consider the results of our untamed passions. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for today and thank you for the privilege we've had to look at your word. Pray that you would make these things true of us. We pray, Father, that you would help us to cease pursuing the passions of the world. To hold off and feeding the passions of our flesh as we seek friendship with the world. And instead, Father, help us to focus on drawing near to you. Help us to focus our energy and our efforts on drawing near to you in humility and reverence, knowing that blessing comes only from your hand. We pray this all in Christ's blessed name. Amen.